Okay, so uh, Daniel 9. So the first five verses, what we've learned so far, it's very important that as we come in, we're going to do a longer introduction this week, because as we come to verse 6, we do have to have the context, the context of Daniel and the context of the surrounding passages. So in Daniel 6, we now come to this event where he... uh, is praying and fasting before God. And the reason that he is doing so is he is doing so because he has been studying the Bible. One thing we emphasized at length last time was that even prophets of God had to be students of the Bible. In fact, prophets of God had to be the best students of the Bible. And that Daniel had been studying the books. And he perceived in the books that the number of years of the captivity was 70 years. It was for a total of 490 years that the Jews had forsaken the Sabbath of the land. And because of that and their idolatry, they have been cast into captivity. And the captivity is going to last 70 years. The land's going to get its Sabbath one way or the other. God decreed it and it will happen. And so they are in the land. And at this point, this is 13 years after the visions of chapter 8. And at this point, he's about 66 or 67 years into that period of captivity. It's coming towards an end, perhaps. Daniel's concern here, of course, is that he knows that the captivity in one sense began when he, Daniel, was taken into captivity in the first wave. Daniel's wave, if you like, where the creme de la creme, the top young people of Babylon, with, uh, of, of Judah, were taken to Babylon to be trained up in Babylonian ways and Babylonian, Babylonian education and understanding. It was about nine years or eight, eight, nine years later that Ezekiel's wave happened and a much larger number of people were taken. And it was a good nine years plus after that, maybe ten years after that, that the city uh, of Jerusalem completely fell and the temple was totally destroyed. So the question, I think, in Daniel's mind is, does the 70 years start when I left? Or does the 70 years start when the mass of people left? That would be the time of Ezekiel. Or does the 70 years begin when the temple finally fell? That's the question. Because the differences could be as much as 18 years of time in captivity. And so Daniel knows that the time's coming to an end potentially, but he prays and he reaches out in prayer. Now, we did make note of the fact that he perceived in the books, plural, that plural is deliberate, though he specifically referenced Jeremiah. We saw last week, Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 29, that Jeremiah tells us it will be 70 years. But we also last week were in Deuteronomy. We were also in First Kings. We were also in Leviticus. We were in these other passages that spoke uh, of the fact that um, for, for the people of God to enjoy the land that God had given them, it required them to be obedient. So I just want to quickly whisk through some of those passages again, because it's going to be relevant to everything that we are doing this week. Because I'll do it quickly, you don't need to turn with me. But Leviticus 26, the entire chapter is talking about the importance of obedience. And then from verse 14, the punishment that comes for disobedience. And it speaks at length. We are very fond in this era about the promises of God. But the problem is, is that we make the promises of God always the good ones. God has promised this blessing. God has promised this and God has promised that. We don't see those little Christian posters. You know the ones with the the, the little duckling curled up with the pussycat, you know, saying, God will comfort you with his love and things like that. You don't tend to see those passages that say, you know, all who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted and, you know, and such things. And you certainly don't see Leviticus 26 there. But there are these promises that God said under Mosaic Covenant, which, yes, we are, we are not under that, uh, the, the, this covenant. That was a covenant with the Jews. But under that covenant, if they were obedient, they would enjoy the land. If they were disobedient, they would be taken out of the land and punished. And that's now where they are. 
And in verse 40, we're told, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, I remember my covenant with Isaac, I remember my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. And so there is this general principle in Leviticus 26 that the Jews will lose the land if they are disobedient. And to return to the land, there has to be this this confession, this repentance of what they've done. Then we saw it also in Jeremiah 3, which we'll leave this week. But I do want to read again from 1 Kings 8 because it's so significant for today. In 1 Kings 8, we have the establishment of the temple. The Spirit of God comes into the temple so that the priests can't do their priestly duties and God is now in their midst. And then as Solomon prays his prayer of dedication, it has echoes of Leviticus 26. Now, I know there are quite a few visitors today, so I want to be quite clear on this point, okay? One thing that we're very big on at this church is what we call intertextuality. For most contemporary people who've come across the phrase intertextuality, it tends to mean how Marvel movies reference previous Marvel movies or how a Disney movie references previous Disney movies and clever things like that. But but when we're in the context of the Bible, what we're talking about is how a part of the Bible references a previous part of the Bible. It's very obvious when you're in the New Testament and it quotes verbatim an Old Testament passage. But there is so much more to it than that. What we need to understand is that when God gave his law to Moses, Moses is there saying, you keep this law, you enjoy the land. You disobey and you're taken out of the land and there's this punishment. That's the law given. We see it in Leviticus 26, it's also there in Deuteronomy and what have you. Then, when we come to 1 Kings 8 and Solomon is establishing the temple, Solomon is referencing Deuteronomy, he's referencing Leviticus, He's referencing those, those books because he knows them. Now, we've spoken before at this church in reference to Psalm 1, that in Deuteronomy 17, a king of Israel had to write out the law for himself. Now, Alex is really glad, as he's become a member today, that we don't have that requirement on our members. Wouldn't it be great if, if you beca- to become a member of the church, just write out the Bible for yourself, present us with your copy that you've written, and then you can become a member. That was kingship in Israel. They literally had to write out the law for themselves. They had to write it out, their own personal copy. Because in the writing of it, it would go into their minds, into their hearts, and they would take it upon themselves. So Solomon is a man of the word, and he, as he prays his prayer of dedication, is praying scripture. And so as he says here, verse 46, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive... And they repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned. We have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all of their mind and with all of their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion for them. What Solomon does is he takes that thread, you will be punished, you will be taken away to another land, but if you repent you will return and Solomon builds upon that. If they plead to you, if they cry out for the house and for the city, if they, talk, if they, if they um, repent of their sin, if they say, we have sinned, we have acted perversely, perversely and wickedly. Now, when Daniel prays, as we saw last time, he uses the same words found in 1 Kings 8. 
So Daniel builds on 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8 builds on Leviticus. We saw several references to Deuteronomy as well. And they're building scripture upon scripture upon scripture. And we're going to see how that develops even further. Um, One more that we didn't mention last week that we'll do this week for the sake of completion. So you get the picture. Is Hosea um, chapter 5. And I love this passage of scripture. This is so powerful. Hosea is the book after Daniel. It's the beginning of the Minor Prophets. But you should know that Hosea chronologically comes before Daniel. Hosea is sort of around the time of Isaiah. King Uzziah, remember he, he, he dies in the year of his death. That's when Isaiah sees his visions. Hosea is around about that time as well. And Hosea in Hosea 5 verse 13 says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. So you have Israel, Ephraim north, Judah south. You have Israel in a, in a, in a bad place. And they go to Assyria, which is what they did historically in Hosea's day, but the, but the Assyria wasn't able to help. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. And I, even I, will tear and go away and carry off and no one shall rescue. Because Israel went to other nations and to the gods of other nations, God himself will carry them off. And we see this parallel right the way through. We've seen this already in Daniel multiple times. That the other nations came in and took Israel captive, but God took them captive. The other nations punished Israel, but God punished Israel. That Nebuchadnezzar was described, even by by Jeremiah, as God's servant. A pagan king. Why? Because God was going to use him to do his purposes to judge Israel. But then verse 15, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. God will go away to his place. He will depart from them. And then when they cry out to him, when they acknowledge their guilt and seek his face, And in their distress, earnestly seek me. Then he will return. He has torn us, Hosea says, that he might heal us. Now all of this as an intro is so that when we come to this prayer of repentance, that we have our our standings, our foundation, our our boundaries, right? Because we need to be careful that we don't go too far, but we need to be careful that we don't hold back and not go far enough. Let me explain what I mean. As I said to you last time, there is a danger that, um, shall I say you or we? I'll make myself one of you, I've got a green card. That we have in this country. There you are, that's me, me being American for the day. That there's a danger that we have in that because this nation was founded on such great foundations, because it is a unique nation in, very, in a very good sense, that was, there is this danger in, in overthinking this country. This country is not Israel. We are not God's chosen nation. We just simply are. You know, I've mentioned this before, but I used to know a guy who wrote a series of eschatology books about end times. It was like a series of books, and one of them was America in Bible Prophecy. And I'm like, I could have written that book. That's really easy. Three words. It's not there. Boom. Done. Finished. It's, it's not there. You can, you can twist scripture all you like, but it's simply not. America is a great nation. But it was raised up relatively recently, and it will come down. God raises up nations, and God brings down nations. That's how it is. And Daniel, of all the books of the Bible, makes that clear. So when we see these national prayers of repentance, many Christians will sometimes take these out of context and and, and just word for word apply them as if God is speaking to America. You know, if you if you repent and you and you cry out, then God will heal the land, you know, and all of that. And it's all out of context. 
There is a specific context to the national prayers of repentance of Israel. And that is this, that Israel uniquely in all of human history is God's chosen nation. And God has said that he will punish that nation for their disobedience. And at the time of this, of this, um, of this book of Daniel... Daniel is experiencing the punishment of God because of their disobedience. And the solution, the solution given in Scripture, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, in 1 Kings, and elsewhere, in Hosea, the solution is for the nation to repent that God may give them their covenant promises back. Or to be even more accurate, to give them different covenant promises. Because the, the, the being captivity is as much a covenant promise... As is the blessings. If you disobey, I promise I'll do this. But if you obey, I promise I'll do that. Right? None of this applies to us. Firstly, we are not Israel. We're the church. They're distinct. Secondly, this is a promise under the particular covenant that is the, that is the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant. If you do this, I will bless you. And if you don't do this, I will punish you. I once saw a Christian pastor I know put up a, a social media post quoting from Deuteronomy saying, if you will do this and I will bless you, and if you don't do that then I won't bless you, and saying, come on Christians, this is the word of God to us. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's the word of God and it's profitable for teaching, but it's part of the Mosaic Covenant was to Israel promising them blessings if they obeyed. We, as Christians have been grafted in to a place of blessing under the new covenant. And that means something completely different. It means that we obey because we've been blessed. That's the beginning of the book of Ephesians. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, right? And so for three chapters of Ephesians, Paul says, God's done this for you, God's done that for you. The Father's done this, the Son's done that, the Spirit's done that. Look at all that you have, look at all the blessings. Look at God showing his manifold wisdom to the, to the, to the heavenly realms through the church and all the blessings he's given you. And it takes until chapter 4 until Paul says, Therefore I urge you as a prisoner of the Lord to walk in a manner worthy of that calling by which you've been called. We are blessed and therefore we obey. So we're not under this covenant. And therefore their prayer of repentance that they might be blessed is not something that is applicable to America. We don't get to say, look at the state of America. It's in a terrible state. This Christian nation that belongs to God. Let us pray a prayer of repentance and then God will keep his covenant with us. Newsflash, he never had a covenant with you in the first place. However... The other error would be to go too far away from this. The other error would be to say, well, this is now completely removed from us. This, this has no application to us. Listen, we are sinners. Everything that Israel did, we do. We as the church who have been saved, who should be obedient, who have received the blessings of God and should be walking in light of that, we constantly rebel. We constantly disobey. We constantly turn from him. We live in an era which is where the world just saturates our life. Just this bombardment that we have for our attention from every piece of technology, from everything going on in the world. We're just, we're just surrounded from anything that would just take us away from, from simple devotion to the God who made us and who gives us breath. We need to know that our prayers of repentance and confession should be a daily thing. And so in this text, we need to, on the one hand, have it in its context and say, okay, this isn't us. But on the other hand, we need to say, this is what repentance looks like, and we need to be doing this. But there is no guarantee. American Christians could rise up and could say, we repent. We've been shallow. We've become a generation of soundbite Christians. We know a verse here and a verse there, but we have no care for your Bible. We want to be loved by the world. 
We want to be accepted by the world. We're prepared to compromise wherever possible. We have been unfaithful and we repent. And church after church after church could rise up and it would make a huge, huge difference. But God might still bring this nation down. There's no guarantees. But it is our job to be faithful. It is our job to speak scripture to the church and to the world. And it is our job to repent when we sin. And so, with all of that by way of context, let's look at the specifics of this prayer of repentance. Verse 6 is where we are picking up. Um, let, me just, let me just go from verse 4. we just repeat that first bit of the prayer. I pray to Yahweh my God and make confession, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. God is a great and awesome God. He is powerful and majestic. As we said last time, awesome doesn't mean what you think it means. Awesome means scary. Awesome means fearful. Awesome means, means dark clouds of doom. Awesome means his enemies cannot stand before him. It doesn't mean, yeah, that's awesome, cool. doesn't mean that at all. God is not cool. But he is scary and mighty. And he is a God that keeps his covenants. And that is the basis of crying out to him. So if we want to look at parallels for us in our prayers, this is parallel number one. We cry out to God on the basis of who he is. We cry out to God on the basis of who he is. You do not cry out to God and say, Hey God, this is me. Um, This terrible thing's happened. I don't like it. It makes me very sad. Can you fix it, please? That is not a biblical prayer. God, in his mercy, often answers those prayers, and that's wonderful. But that's not a biblical prayer. A biblical prayer begins with remembering who we're addressing and who he is. And the basis of our prayer is him and his character. We come to him because of who he is. That's what uh, Daniel does, and we spent quite a long time last week looking at how Daniel is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7 and chapter 10 there. Um, so, uh, we have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And there we had, where we ended last time, a broad use of different terminology regarding sin, which is quoted directly from Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8 that we just read, to express the extent of their sin. They sinned, the word there means to miss the mark, they fell short of God's righteousness, They have dealt perversely, as many versions say, turned away from the right way, and they've acted wickedly, losing their hold on God. And ultimately, they've rebelled, which is this key concept of turning away from God and from his law. So we pick up in verse 6, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Two things to note here, all of which get repeated through this prayer. So we'll go quicker as we go through the prayer because there's there's quite a lot of it just being repeated in various ways. One of these key concepts is this. To your kings, to your princes. Kings is specific. It's the main leaders. Princes is the general term for rulers. And then to all uh, your fathers, ancestors, and to all the people of the land. This is to be deliberately all-encompassing. Everybody has sinned from the top to the bottom. Now, Israel had historically what scholars call a leadership complex. Basically, when the king of Israel was good, then the people worshipped Yahweh. When the king of Israel was bad, then the people didn't worship Yahweh. Broadly speaking. Of course, there were exceptions. You know, and it was under the the wicked rulership that uh, Elijah says, well, there's There's no one left but me. No, 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 says God, I have a remnant. So, but generally speaking, when we have a king that is obedient before God and obeying God and worshipping God, then the nation follows. And that's typically how it is with Israel. And there is this recognition by Daniel that the leaders have sinned. The leaders have uh, fallen and all the people with them. And the reason that that has happened, and this is the other main point of this verse, is they haven't listened to your servants, the prophets. I I know I'm preaching to the choir at this point, but it needs to be said. The problem with the church in this country, and, and in so much of the Western world, 
is that we simply don't like our Bibles. That's, that's the problem. I mean, it's just there. You could say, well, the problem is that they're embracing this sin. The problem is that they're embracing this false teaching. The problem is that they're, trying to, they're playing footsie with the world. Well, that all of that is true. But that has come about in a vacuum. That's come about because we are not people of the word, generally speaking, amongst evangelical churches. It is the great irony of this generation that churches that define themselves as being evangelical or Bible-believing, that we are the Christians in distinction from the more liberal and progressive ones who would call themselves Christians, who would deny God's word and reject God's word, that we are the ones who stand upon God's word. And it is deeply ironic that in the midst of this generation, that those who call themselves Bible-believing Christians do not know, nor do they read, nor do they care for their Bibles, let alone bow down and submit to their Bibles. We have become a generation of soundbite Christians. We know John 3.16. And we might even get it tattooed on us. But we won't read the context around it. So we'll never really understand it. And if there's a text of the Bible that we do know and we have memorized. But then the world says, well, we don't like that. We find that offensive. Then we can shift and move and what have you. Because the Bible is to us an accompaniment. It's just something we do as Christians. Oh yeah, we're supposed to read our Bible. I'll do that occasionally. Friends, we have to be people of the word. It has to be our absolute priority. That as we wouldn't go without food day to day, nor should we go without our Bibles. Not only that we follow a Bible reading plan, and we have the plenty of copies of the church, if you want to read along with us, those of us who are following it, so we're reading the same passages together each day. Not only following a plan like that, where we're getting large amounts of Bible in us, and we're making sure we read the entire thing each year, but that we're students of the Word, that we, we go through sermon series, and we read books, and we read books about the Bible, and we read the Bible, and then we don't know something, we look things up, and we ask questions, and we make it our business to be people of the Word. That does not mean... And I, 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 I'm bewildered that I need to say that, but in this, in this age I do... Being a person of the word does not mean putting a Bible quote on social media with a coffee mug in the mornings. That's a very popular thing in many churches. Here's my coffee mug. Here's my open Bible. Here's a verse. Hashtag person of the word. Right? That's not it. That's, a, that's checking a box so that we can say, okay, that's done. Now I can get on with my life. The word of God has to consume us. How do I live? The Word of God. What do I think? The Word of God. How do I perceive God? The Word of God. It has all of these answers. And not only does it tell us everything we need to know, but it is completely sufficient in that all we need to know about God and how we walk before Him is contained within it. And I'm thankful for all the wonderful things that we can learn outside of the Bible. I mean, my goodness, if I broke my leg, I'd be glad that there was a doctor that read books other than the Bible, right? But if I didn't know a doctor who knew how to fix a broken leg, and I had a broken leg for the rest of my life, and I was constantly in pain, I can walk without sin. I can walk uprightly before my God in the midst of suffering and pain, because his word is sufficient to show me how to do that. We have to be people of the word. And the whole of this prayer has come from Daniel being a person of the word. And he recognizes that the nation of Israel from the top to the bottom has rejected the word. And that's why they are where they are. Now there is something that we can have as a parallel with America. Why is the church of America why the way it is right now? Because we've neglected the word of God. Sure, there are oases in the desert. But the reason they're called oases, if that's the right plural, <laughs> is, is because they are isolated and they are far and few between. And so the problem came about because they didn't listen 
to God's word and to the prophets that were sent. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, verse 7. But to us, open shame. To you belongs righteousness, but to us belongs open shame. This is the beginning of any prayer of repentance. And you can see how we, we kind of, we shifting from, from this is who God is and this is who we are. And now we can, we can put those two things together. You, God, are great and awesome. We've sinned in all these ways. Now he puts them together and he shows us that God is righteous, but we have open shame. That Literally, the text there says, we have confusion of face. You know, if you've done something, let's let's not embarrass you too much. Let's let's say it was when you were a child. Let's say you were a child and you were caught in some nefarious act by your parents. You thought you'd gotten away with it, but they found the crumbs and they found the evidence. And they said, did you take the cookies from the cookie jar? And then your face goes down. You look away. There is that, that facial response to being caught. And then there is shame. That's what's going on here. There is that open shame, that confusion of face, that they are confronted by their sin. You belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. The basis of our sin is God's righteousness. It is because he is holy that our sin matters. The the basic concept of holiness is being set apart. God is holy and we are unlike him. He, He is distinct, set apart from us. And our sin is evidence of that. That's why holiness and sin are so often connected. That God is holy and we are sinful, so we are unholy. And it is that recognition of who he is that leads us to recognize our treachery that has been committed. The other thing to note from this verse, in verse 7, is that this is applicable to all of the Jewish people. Some of the northern kingdom, prior to all of the events of Daniel, were taken away into captivity into Assyria. Daniel is in the southern kingdom of Judah at this split kingdom period of history, and they were taken into captivity later. The northern kingdom was their warning, but they didn't listen. They were then taken into captivity by Babylon. And there are Jews that are in Egypt, and there are Jews that have remained in the area of the land. There are Jews all over the place. And this applies to them all. It applies to them all. Why? Because they have a covenant with God. They have a covenant with God. We'll talk more about that at the end. Um, So verse 8, to us, O Yahweh belongs open shame, there's that repetition, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Verse 8 repeats all those themes that we're seeing. The name of God, Yahweh, is used again. It's been not used at all in Daniel until chapter 9 because of the distance from him, but now they're appealing on the basis of his covenant-keeping love. That's why they use his name. And then we have, again, this open shame that is rightly theirs because the leaders all the way down have sinned. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Because he is righteous and because we have sinned against him, it's him that we must go to for forgiveness. It's him that we must go to for mercy. Listen. If, if, if I do something, if I do something wrong against my wife, it's no use, and I know that would never happen, she's, she's there saying, no, no, that would never happen. Um, if, it's no use in me going to you and apologizing to you and saying, oh, you know, I'm really sorry that I did that to my wife. You're like, well, why are you telling me? Right? Forgiveness always has to come through the wounded party. There has to, forgiveness in its very definition of its meaning is reconciliation, right? We have used the word forgiveness in Christian circles far too broadly. We, you know, if, 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 if someone's really mean to us and we say, you've been really mean to us, and they say, well, I don't care, and you say, well, I forgive you anyway. No, you don't. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is the reconciliation. What you mean is you have forbearance towards them. What you mean is that you are choosing not to engage in bitterness or to hold a grudge. But that's not, strictly speaking, forgiveness. 
Or, or is our forgiveness somehow greater than God's forgiveness? Does God forgive apart from repentance? No, no, no. Because forgiveness is that reconciliation. So what Daniel is praying for is not merely for God to, to say, oh, yeah, it's okay, don't worry. What, what, what Daniel is praying for is for there to be this reconciliation of relationship. And God is the one that we must go to because he is the one that we have sinned against. That's what David says in Psalm 51, in that famous prayer when he prays. His, um, having been confronted by Nathan the prophet concerning his sin regarding Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And he says in that prayer, against you and you only have I sinned. And I mean, that's a difficult verse. Let's be frank. Yes? That's a difficult verse. Why? Well, because he sinned against Bathsheba, right? And he certainly sinned against Uriah because he murdered him. So to suggest that David hasn't sinned against them seems a little bit strong, does it not? So why is it that David says against you, you and you only? I mean, if David wanted to be vague, he could have just said, against you I have sinned. And then we could have said, yeah, he has sinned against God, but he also sinned against other people as well. But the text specifically says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How can Daniel say that? Because everything that we do is first and foremost a violation of the holiness and the righteousness of God. Christians today struggle with the doctrine of hell. As the generations go by, we see more and more Christians who call themselves Bible-believing rejecting the doctrines of hell and judgment and the lake of fire. Why, why is that happening? Because as each generation goes by, we get further away from an understanding of the holiness and the righteousness of God. If we think that eternal damnation is unfair, it only speaks to our lack of awareness of the seriousness of sin. God is righteous. We have rebelled. Shame is rightfully ours. And it's, so it is to him that we must go for mercy and forgiveness. And then verse 10. We have not obeyed the voice of Yahweh our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants the prophets. There again we see this repetition we need to be doing what his word says, and otherwise we're in rebellion. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. That, to me, is one of the most important phrases in the entirety of this prayer of repentance. Particularly when we think about the application to us, right? It is... It is the kiss of death for a church like us that is a Bible teaching church. A church like us that is focused on the word. A church like us where most of the members are following Bible reading plans. Where most people are studying their Bible. Where most people are listening to sermons and do want to grow. It's, it's a kiss of death if we think of ourselves in a superior and proud sense. Absolutely it's the kiss of death. Daniel doesn't say, do you know what? I want to tell you how bad they've been, God, but I've been pretty good. When you brought me into Babylon, and I was castrated as a young man, and I was forced, indoctrinated against my will in the ways of Babylon, I was found to be faithful. When, the, 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 when they were trying to kill me, I was found to be faithful. When I was threatened to be thrown into a lion's den, I was found to be faithful. So Lord, I confess their sins. I confess their crimes and their errors. The second we get into that mentality, we are shooting ourselves in the foot. It is the kiss of death to a church. It's the kiss of death to, to any relationship. It's the kiss of death to a marriage. The second that your problem is your spouse, you are the problem. You in your heart have said, oh Lord, you know, 
here I am being faithful, but my spouse, that's the problem now. You are now the problem because you aren't going to look at your own heart and your own sin and your own failings and your own problems, which is the only thing that you can control. Because you certainly can't control your spouse. My wife learned that one. Because many of us are stubborn people and it requires God to change us, right? You can see a few nodding amens there, which is good to see. Humble understanding. God's the only one that can change. And so, so, when, so when we think that we are the superior one, whether that's us as a, as a partnership in marriage, whether it's us within a group of people, whether it's us as a church within the church more broadly in this nation, we have a huge problem. Yes, there are churches that do not teach the word. Yes, there are churches that put on carnivals to entertain rather than equip the saints for the work of ministry. Yes, there are churches that call themselves churches that really shouldn't even be called churches because they've gone so far from God's word. But what that got to do with us? I find myself, as I get older, more and more impacted by Paul's last words in 2 Timothy 4 where he speaks of his life as a drink offering poured out. Imagine that you go to the kitchen, it's a hot day, maybe the air conditioning's not kicked in enough, just gotten home, you go to the fridge, you pull out a nice carton of orange juice and you pour yourself a nice, cold, fresh carton of orange juice and your, your lips are just wet at the thought of it. And then someone takes that cup and just pours it down the sink. That's the imagery of our lives. That there we are with the whole of the world in front of us. Our years, our days, our thoughts, our efforts, our energies. The all that we are in the world. All that we can do and accomplish with our lives for us. And we just go, we just give up everything for the sake of God. That's just so important for us to grasp. Do you know, at the end of Moses' life, Go from the end of Paul to the end of Moses. At the end of his life, he, we have at the end of Deuteronomy the song of Moses. And he says in that song, that he, multiple times, he references God as being the rock. He says, You're the rock, all his ways are perfect and just. Why does he call God in that context the rock? Because Moses struck the rock a second time, and because of that sin... He wasn't able to see the promised land. If anyone's going to see the promised land right the way through Israel's history, it's going to be Moses, right? He's the leader. He's the good guy in the midst of all the bad guys. I mean, he's going to see the promised land. And he makes one mistake and he doesn't get to see the promised land. And he says, You're the rock and your ways are perfect and just. Are we prepared to see our life, our dreams? our ambitions, our desires, our joys, just poured out before God and say, you are perfect and your sovereign will is perfect and what you've decreed for my life is perfect. Not my choice, but I'm not as clever as you. And so I embrace your will. I embrace your providence. I embrace the pain. I embrace the trials because you are sovereign and you are good. Now, when we get to that place, when we understand what it is to have our life poured out, then we're in a place where we see we are not special. We are not distinct. We are not the good guys. And Lord, change all those other people. We are wicked to the core because within us is this selfishness and pride that every time we pour our lives out, we find ourselves unwittingly filling that glass up again to satisfy us all over again and we have to go through the process all over again where we say oh no no not not my will but yours be done not my will Lord but yours be done even Jesus in his humanity in Gethsemane three times not your not my will Lord but yours be done just needs to be the cry of our lives and so as we see we pick up uh, Verse 11, we were in, all Israel has transgressed, we've all transgressed, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Refusing to obey your voice 
and the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. That's Leviticus 26 that we referenced at the start. This was the law written in the law that it would happen. And it was poured out upon us. Verse 12, he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us this great calamity. If God hadn't punished Israel, God would not have been righteous. God would not have been a covenant-keeping God. He would have been a God who breaks covenants. He confirmed his word by doing what he said he would do, which in this context is punishment. And in doing so, what he does is he says he brings uh, upon us a great calamity. The word literally in the Hebrew is evil. Now, God is not the, the one who gives evil, which is why most versions will translate something like calamity here. Okay? But the same word is used. And the word evil is used in two distinct ways. Evil is used of things that we do that are evil. But evil is also used in the sense of calamity. In the sense of something that's not nice. Some sort of tragedy or mi- that would misfall someone. <clears throat> and the Bible is clear here that God brings about that calamity. I think one of the hardest things for Christians to understand to get their heads around. And, and, and to be honest with you, one of the biggest hurdles to maturity is this whole question of evil and us embracing the sovereignty of God in the midst of evil. We've become this soft-bellied generation of Christians who, who want God to make our lives better. Right? People, people, people go to God like they would go to a therapist. Oh, my life's not going very well right now, so maybe God, you can sort it out. Because I tried this and I tried that, maybe I'll give God a bit of a try. Maybe Jesus could help. But ultimately, the goal is the same. And the goal is this, a life that is no longer a roller coaster, A life that is smooth sailing. A life of comfort, a life of pleasure. A life where we meet our goals. No wonder it is that that the health, wealth and prosperity gospel of the Joel Osteens of the world is so popular. Because people want to have their best lives now. That's what they want. That's not the Christian faith. That's not the Christian life. Paul promises to Timothy that everyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus himself said, if you want to come after me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross. Could he have chosen a clearer image of suffering than cross? I am going to the cross, and if you want to follow me, that's where I went, and that's where you need to go. So so we see in churches today, multitudes multitudes of people who think that they can come to God through the wide path. People who can come to a God who simply exists to say, oh, don't worry about it, I love you anyway, here, have some blessings. That's, that's not the nature of God. God is a holy, just, and righteous God. And what we need to understand is that the price for our sin was a ridiculously high price, as we're going to see as we come to the table in a moment. And that God takes sin so desperately seriously. And for us as Christians, we have to get away from this caricature that Christ saves us from our sins insofar as sins need to be punished and he takes the punishment so we don't have to have the punishment. All of that is true, but it's incomplete. Jesus saved us from the power of sin, that we would no longer walk in it. Paul says, you know, do we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And the answer, by no means, is a very polite way of saying the strongest possible negation in the Greek language, which is basically saying in English, absolutely not even the remotest chance. 
But you've been set free from sin. You were dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. And how does God enable us to walk a life where our sin decreases? Where our devotion to him increases? Where our servanthood increases? Where we become someone who is bringing more glory to him? Through trials and suffering. And there is no exception and there are no other ways. And that is the Christian life. And so it is that we need to understand that God is the God who brings calamity on the Jews as judgment. And we have to get our heads around this because in our lives we will have calamities. People we love will get sick. People we love will die. People we love will reject us. Things that we love in this life will be taken away from us. Things that we wanted, we won't get. We will go through event after event after event in this life that we would not wish upon our own enemies, let alone ourselves. And we have to have such a robust, biblical understanding of who God is that when we stand there with tears flowing down our cheeks in the face of diagnoses that we didn't want and tragedies that we couldn't comprehend that we can still say he is sovereign and he is good he is sovereign and he is good and while we might cry that we might wail that we may not understand that we might say why oh lord My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How long, O Lord? And all the other various laments of scripture that might be the cry of our heart that just needs to pour out in unbridled honesty at the same time we look at him again and we say, he is sovereign, he is good. He is sovereign and he is good. And I think for many of us, it's getting over that hurdle that is the step from going from childhood to maturity in our Christian walk. It's getting to that point where we say, even in the midst of this, he who could prevent this, he who hasn't taken this away, he who maybe has brought this upon us, he is still sovereign. And he is still, oh, so very good. And that's the basis of this prayer. The God who brings calamity is the God who brings forgiveness. For under the whole heaven there has not been anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. Hyperbole, perhaps. I think perhaps Daniel is thinking more of the fact that Jerusalem was lifted so high that the bringing of it down is a greater tragedy than perhaps a greater destruction on a place that was never lifted so high. But I tell you what, there's nobody as high and lifted up as you are in your own hearts and your own minds, is there not? We see on the news, some plane has crashed, some famine is going on, some tragedy has happened, and we let it just wash over us. But someone cuts us up in traffic, now that's suffering. Am I right? Is that not how it is? Our pride just exposed again and again and again, and reminding us, That no matter how great that tragedy, no matter how terrible and overwhelming, when things happen to us, we feel them more. When they happen to our loved ones, we feel them more. And no matter how much we suffer, no matter how great the tragedy, God is still sovereign and in charge. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Guys, that is the one thing that we need to do, or the two things, sorry, two things we need to do, okay? What did they not do? They had suffering, right? And they said, we're suffering. Great, that's brilliant. And that's important, and we say this a lot. Regulars will know that I believe passionately in the three things that define lament. There's an A, a B, and a C. It makes it easy to remember, because I'm simple like that. A, B, and C of lament. Acknowledgement, beholding, and crying out. We have to acknowledge our pain. And we don't want to be those Christians who belittle people's pain. Oh, did you just have a terrible tragedy? 
Just praise God anyway. You should be rejoicing. Ugh. Loathe those kind of Christians, right? Lament is a biblical thing which God has ordained for us to cry out and pour out our heart. The, psalm, the psalmist begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he ends the psalm by saying that I know that you will raise me up. So we have the, 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 the grace of God to acknowledge our pain, acknowledge our suffering, to express how badly we feel. But we must not stop there. We have to go from acknowledging to beholding and looking at who God is and his character. That's what it says here. It says, gaining insight by your truth. What we need to do when we are in a place of sin, a place of suffering, a place of torment, whether it's from our own hand or whether it's seemingly, you know, just something that's just happened. The world will call it random. We need to be turning to his word to learn and grow in him, looking at who he is. To behold, he is sovereign and he is good. And then see, we need to cry out. And that's what the text is really saying here. It says, here you were suffering, but you never sought God. You never went to study him. You never went to look at who he was, so you never cried out. If you believe that God is sovereign and he can change things, if you believe that God is good and he wants the best of you, then why wouldn't you cry out to him? That makes no sense. You have to cry out to him. How often? Again and again and again. Is the pain still there? Then you keep crying out. Simple as that. If the pain hasn't changed, A, and he hasn't changed, B, then you keep on crying. And so Daniel is repenting of their lack of crying out to God. Therefore, Yahweh has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us. Man, if you thought you could, if you, if you couldn't wriggle out of verse 13, you really can't wriggle out of verse 14, can you? He, he had it ready. The, the picture being painted by the text here is that this, um, this calamity was being held ready. Oh, I promised I'd bring calamity. So I've got to keep my promises. I'm, I'm waiting. I've got it ready. I've got it stored up. It's like maybe some of your households, when Christmas comes close, maybe some of you who are good planners, you put aside a bit of money before Christmas so you've got enough for presents, right? It's like God was, I've got this calamity stored up ready. We're good, right? Man, you just have to embrace these texts and embrace that God is doing that. He's kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us for Yahweh our God is righteous in all the works he has done. God has prepared, protected, kept calamity for us for, because he is righteous. The implication is not just he's done this and he's still righteous. The implication he's done this because he's righteous. And if he didn't do this, he wouldn't be righteous. God has to do what he has to do. He has to punish sin or he wouldn't be righteous. And he has to discipline his children and deal with our sin and our pride and our selfishness or he wouldn't love us. And we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the hand of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. He refers back to, to Egypt and there's Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 9 and references here we don't have time for, but he, he reaches back to, the, to the, uh, the time of the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea and speaks of the might of God. Then he sees their sin, he sees God's might, and he knows that God can restore. So verse 16, here's the plea. O oh, you Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. This is crucial, and this is kind of really where the conclusion of, this, of the prayer is. The prayer then is God, turn away. Let your anger and your wrath turn away. Turning is a key biblical concept. We have rebelled. We've turned. God, we're crying out to you that you would turn. You would turn your wrath. Notice the use of pronouns here. Turn away your wrath 
from your city, your holy hill, because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people. It is for his sake, his city, his people. It's for him that we're praying that wrath be turned away. What's the ours? That just simply refers to our sin. One of the biggest problems that Christians have with prayer is that prayer is always about us. Hey God, I'm uncomfortable. Can you fix it? Hey God, I'm suffering. Can you take it away? Hey God, my life's not perfect. Can you make it better? Hey God, can you give me a better car? Hey God, can you give me a better job? Hey God, can you take away this problem? Hey God, I don't like this person. Hey God, hey God, hey God. And it doesn't matter how many times you say God, you're not pulling the wool over his eyes. You're God. Because you're the one that has to be worshipped and adored. For your sake, for your name. I wish that when we suffer, we would pray for his name's sake. It would make it so much easier for us to turn around and say, but yet not my will be done, but yours. You know, if, you, if, you're in a, if, if your marriage is struggling and you're praying, oh God, can you fix this, can you do this? Then normally, even when someone is seeking God and crying out to God for help, then what they're wanting is their pain to be taken away. Their focus is still on them, rather than on the witness of their marriage, something that's supposed to be a representation of the relationship between Christ and the church that is in disarray, and what that brings to the name of God, and how that hinders each of those parties to be able to to live for the glory of God in the manner that God intended, for the marriage to operate as it should. We're praying for our sake rather than for his sake. In all of our prayers, we're just, we're just prone to doing that. I remember that, you know, in, in, in years of marriage with, with my wife, when, when we were struggling, for me, this was an absolute light bulb moment of change for us. That I came to the point where I recognized, do you know what? I'm, I'm praying that she would change for my sake, rather than praying that I would change for his sake. And we need to have those light bulb moments in every area of our lives. Daniel knew it. He understood it. He's praying for God's name. Your people have become a byword. It's God who took them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And it's now God who is no longer perceived as mighty because they're in captivity. So now, verse 17, therefore our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations, the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Do you see the repetition there? Your, 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 for your sake. He wants Jerusalem to be restored, not for his pleasure, but for God's good pleasure. We tend to come to God in confession for our sins when they annoy us enough. Right? Like, no one comes to God and asks for help with their gambling problem when they're winning. Right? We come to God for help when we're losing. We come to God for help when our sin has caused us grief. Because we want our lives to be resolved. There's a lot more I wanted to say, I could say, but we're out of time, we're over time, and I'm really sorry. But we need to come to the table together. So why don't we, as we come now, put some of these elements that we've learned into practice Specifically, I want us to remember as we pray now that our sin is a bigger problem to God than it is to us. That his glory is more important than our comfort. And our sin is a bigger issue than we can possibly realize. We're going to come now and receive, receive from his table to remember together the sacrifice of Christ and the provision for sin. So let us come with a clear heart and a clear conscience and let us pray together.
Father, as we come now to your table, it is my prayer, Lord, that you would convict each and every one of us of the severity of sin. That we would be convicted not of the sins of those who irritate us, not of the sins of the nation around us, not of the sins of those not as great as ourselves in our own proud eyes, but that we would be convicted of the severity of our own sin. That we would recognize how offensive our sin is to a righteous God. And that we might confess before you that we have failed, that we have rejected your word, that we have lived our own way for our own comfort and our own glory. Forgive us, Lord. May we choose to walk uprightly, empowered by the Holy Spirit that you have given us, that we might consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus, and we might rise up to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called, we've been called. You empowering us and us walking in faithfulness. Forgive us for our stumbling. Forgive us for our turning away. And Lord, restore us. Restore us again this day in fellowship with you and one another. Restore us on the basis of the blood of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.